from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. One friend of mine read it all night last night. He didn't sleep. The individual who actually read it for the audiobook said he wanted to take his headphones off. He wanted to take his equipment and slam it against the wall. He was so frustrated. If it can happen to Russ Faria, mm-hmm. it can happen to anybody. And that may be the fear as well as the fascination. When we did our first dateline, I told Keith Morrison, who's since become very friendly with me, that he'd be back. And he looked at me and he scoffed. And it's become a running joke now that he's been back for a sixth time. I'm Sarah Fenske. Joel Schwartz has been a defense attorney in St. Louis for three decades. He's been a prominent one and a busy one. But a case he took just over 10 years ago would change his life in ways he didn't see coming. Joel Schwartz was hired by a man named Russell Faria. Faria was accused of killing his wife, Betsy. But he said he didn't do it, and Joel Schwartz believed him. He became convinced that a friend of Betsy Faria's, an O'Fallon woman named Pam Hupp, was actually to blame, that Pam had killed Betsy for the insurance money. Now, if those names sound familiar, well, Dateline has now devoted multiple episodes to this case. There's even an upcoming NBC series. It's called The Thing About Pam, and dreamboat actor Josh Duhamel plays Joel Schwartz. There's also a book. It's out this month, co-authored by veteran true crime writer Charles Bosworth Jr. and Joel Schwartz. It's called Bone Deep, Untangling the Betsy Faria Murder Case. And Joel Schwartz joins us today to tell us about it. Joel, welcome. Thank you for having me, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Joel, I'm excited about this. So many people have been following this case for years. There have been so many twists and turns. When Russ Faria first hired you, this was January 4th, 2012. Did you have any idea this would still be such a part of your life one full decade later? No, that would have been impossible to predict. The truth of the matter is I thought this case would be out of my life in about a month, maybe two months, because the evidence was simply so overwhelming, indicative of Russ's, not that he was not guilty or not that they couldn't prove it, but simply that he was innocent and could not possibly have committed this heinous act. Yeah, I mean, he had a terrific alibi. This is the kind of alibi that I'm sure you dream about for some of your clients. Well, I've never had an alibi of this nature before. Now, I've had some, but the nature of this was it was provable by four independent witnesses who the police interviewed separately three times, It was also supported by his cell phone, along with receipts found in his car. Um, And the cell site tracked him going to the alibi and then leaving the alibi witness's house approximately 45 minutes away. What they were able to do in Russ Faria speaking to them the evening of his wife's demise was to effectively prove that he couldn't have done it. Yeah. I mean, there's all these witnesses that said he was at this game night. You know exactly where he was as he drove to and fro. This left them with a case where he might have theoretically had like roughly one minute to kill his wife, clean up the whole thing, be there in the same outfit. I mean, it it literally made no sense. It boggles the mind. It would have been impossible for him to have done this. Uh, The police attempted to put a square peg into the round hole in that they jump to a conclusion, which is, again, law, it's 
police work 101. You don't do that. They jumped to a conclusion, decide, he decided that Russ Faria was the one who committed the crime, and then spent the next several years attempting to figure out how it was possible that he could have done it. Well, it wasn't, and they didn't. It wasn't, and they didn't. And at the same time, they are overlooking a far more obvious suspect. For people who have not watched all these Dateline episodes, tell us a little bit about Pam Hobb. Well, that's the aspect that's mind-blowing about this entire escapade. Not only did they effectively prove that Russ Faria couldn't have done this, there was such a glaring um, suspect. Everybody, including you, have call, has called Bets, Bets, or Pam Hop Betsy Faria's friend. Mm-hmm. Betsy and Pam weren't friends. Pam was an opportunist. They had worked together years before, and then Pam somehow reappeared in Betsy's life once she was diagnosed with cancer. Mm -hmm. As it became terminal, Pam then, quote-unquote, became her friend, as other people thought. But hindsight's 20-20. She was merely an opportunist. She knew she could coerce Betsy into signing the proceeds of her life insurance and eventually do what they've accused her of doing. And the crazy thing is, if Pam Hop had just had a little bit of patience, I mean, she convinced Betsy Faria to sign over this life insurance policy, six figures, sign it over to her, Betsy was dying of cancer. Well, that is, and always has been with me, what I call the $150,000 question. Pam said Betsy signed it over, and there was a witness who saw these two women that looked like them sign something. We really don't know what that was. I believe that Somehow Betsy either didn't sign it and Pam had forged it, as she had done in the past in insurance documents, or Betsy was somehow coerced into signing this due to pressure applied by Pam. We had witnesses that would indicate Betsy did not want to go to this meeting and she was feeling pressured by Pam. Mm -hmm. I suspect had she waited, notice would have been sent, her family and or Russ would have known about the change in beneficiary, and then it either would have been torn up or it would have been rescinded. So Pam had to strike when she struck. There is no other explanation as to why she struck when she struck. And I think she knew when she plotted this out the week earlier, because everybody who knew the couple, Betsy and Russ, knew Russ was gone for four hours every Tuesday night, and that was the perfect opportunity. During the course of that day, Pam attempted to force herself within Betsy's errands and Betsy's cancer treatment. And there's actually an email and a text back to Pam that says, no, don't come. I want to spend what she calls, quote, unquote, one-on-one time with my other friend. Pam showed up anyway. She had a plan. She absolutely had a plan. And she volunteered to take her home that evening, even though Russ was going to be swinging by on his way home. Now, remember, we're not talking about a two-minute drive out of Pam's way. We're talking about 45 minutes each way on a snowy, dark, cold December night. And this is a woman who kept saying, oh, I hate to drive. I'm just uncomfortable driving in the dark. She really went out of her way to be there. And these facts that you're stating are basically just the tip of the iceberg. We go into these, and at the very, very least, the, the question everyone has asked me of, why didn't they look at Pam? Mm-hmm. Ten years later, given these, these things that we've touched on, I still can't answer that question. And what makes this so appalling from somebody who digs into this case, reads this excellent book, this is Bone Deep, Untangling the Betsy Faria Murder Case, this was the major case squad in Greater St. Louis. This is not some podunk police department that we might think is in over their head. Does that frighten you, knowing that? It does frighten me that they didn't investigate her and that they believed what she was saying simply because they were told she was Betsy Faria's friend. 
I think that has what draw has what's been that drawn everyone to this story because frankly, it can happen to anybody. Russ was clearly, absolutely, provably innocent. Um, I can tell you that people who have read Bone Deep, one friend of mine read it all night last night. He didn't sleep. The individual who actually read it for the audio book said he wanted to take his headphones off. He wanted to take his equipment and slam it against the wall. He was so frustrated in reading this factual account of what happened. It really makes people's blood boil. Um, I lived through it. It made my blood boil time and time again. And fortunately, the people who were involved, at the very least, are getting their just desserts. Yes, there has been some justice in this case, but it took a long time. And in part, that's because it wasn't just the major case squad that screwed this thing up. The part that made me want to throw this book at the wall, even though it's very soberly written, you're not, you know, you're not coming in trying to inflame people. The facts are so inflaming. The judge in this case, she basically said that you, Joel Schwartz, as you're defending Russ Faria, that you cannot bring in any of this evidence about this friend who had had the insurance policy changed to make herself the beneficiary and that we know was the last person to see Pam who had dropped her off at, at her house that night, had a story that didn't make any sense. She ruled that all out of bounds and you had to go through this trial basically with one hand tied behind your back. Or two hands tied behind my back. Two hands. It was frustrating to say the least. I did the best I could. This was a very, very inexperienced judge. Uh, This was her first murder trial. Uh, She had never tried a criminal case when she was in private practice, and I think she simply listened to the prosecutor, trusted the prosecutor, um, and didn't listen to anything I had to say. I did my best to educate her because I knew she was inexperienced. Going so far at one point as to laying a hundred separate cases down in front of her to the point where there was a stack where she could no longer see me. Just to prove a point, I knew she wasn't going to change her mind, but I wanted to make it clear how wrong she was. And as we now know, the Court of Appeals and everybody else who has viewed this case says this is simply unheard of, which I think is why it has garnered so much attention here as well as nationally. So when you're going through the lawyering on this case and you're doing this trial where, as you say, two hands tied behind your back, did you know at that point, we're going to lose. I just have to create the best possible record I can because I know we can win this on appeal. Um, No and yes. No, I didn't know we were going to lose. Even though I was unable to get into Pam Hupp's multitude of lies. It was a, it was the most complex web you've ever seen, and that's not giving her credit. It's just she simply lied, and they would buy into it. Um, and the fact that I couldn't get into those things, I still believed that there wasn't any evidence there to convict Russ. I was able to present his alibi. I was able to present his whereabouts. The prosecutor spun a tale that I go into the book that you'll have to read to, to understand, this was, not, this was fairly unethical. I mean, she claimed, without any evidence cultivated at trial, that three other people had been in on this with Russ. That's accurate. She claimed four other people had been in it with Russ, and she argued things that were proven to not be true, but really had nothing to do with the trial. Mm-hmm. And I am, I, I feel bad for these jurors. I feel bad that they were forced to listen to this and that they didn't hear all the evidence and they came up with this conclusion. 
However, back to your earlier question, I still believe that the truth would prevail and they would find him not guilty. So they did not do that. They, um, uh, you know, he is found guilty of murder. And the only reason you were able to get a new trial this swiftly is because of what's called a Mooney motion. This is something where you have to say, we suddenly have some new evidence. Like what you were, what you found at trial, that wouldn't have been enough to get this as fast-tracked as you were able to get it. That's correct. Um, I still firmly believe, I know, that it would have come back on an appeal. Russ just would have been locked up considerably longer. The Mooney motion, uh, there was a woman in my office named Hannah Zhao, and she came to me and s- once we got this new information. And I had never heard of this. It's something that's not taught in law school. This was actually the third time in the history of the state of Missouri that it's ever been granted. That mm. indicates how rare it is. And essentially, it's evidence that's so overwhelming towards the innocence of the client that it would most likely cause a jury to come up with a different result. And this evidence, this has to do with Pam and the money. This had to do with the fact that she had opened a trust the week prior to the trial, uh, as directed by the police, to make her look good, quote-unquote. The trial court nevertheless didn't hear about the money. However, she immediately defunded the trust the week after trial. That, while... The jury didn't actually hear about that evidence, so it was hard to argue that it would have altered the verdict. The Court of Appeals took it as such, and the Chief Justice wrote a scathing opinion and sent it back uh, so half, so fast it would make your head spin. So you were able to get another bite at this apple. You got a far more fair trial. You could bring in Pam's, Pam Hupp's role in this. We're able to get your client found not guilty. And this should be such a celebration, but Pam was able to kill again. Do you feel like people have blood on their hands because of how they botched this first trial? It's a big leap to make. No, none of the officers nor the prosecutor knew that Pam Hub would do what she did. They should have known what she had done previous to that point in time regarding Betsy. However, had they done their jobs, had they done their their jobs appropriately, Pam Hub would not have been a free woman to harm Mr. Lewis Gumpenberger as she did. So is it hard knowing that? I mean, you try, you did everything you could to get this woman looked at seriously, and yet there's somebody dead because, un- unfortunately, those efforts were not successful. Well, there is an argument that there's two people dead because those efforts weren't successful. Mm-hmm. But there was only so far that a criminal defense attorney can go. And I actually went further than I generally would go. After this trial concluded and Russ Faria was found not guilty, I called Richard Callahan, who was the U.S. attorney at the time, Mm -hmm. and I go into this in the book, and I quote myself accurately. I told him, Rich, if somebody doesn't do something, someone else will die. Yeah, it's extraordinary for a defense attorney to do this. Well, you know what? I I felt horrible for Betsy's family in several ways. Number one, I felt horrible for them due to their loss. Number two, I felt even worse for them that they had been influenced to a degree where they believed Russ Faria was responsible for this. I would speak to Betsy Faria's mom, Janet, who was a wonderful, wonderful woman. And we got along well. And she said, Joel, I, I, I like you. I really like mm-hmm. you. And you're good at your job. But we both know he did it. Well, suffice it to say, after they charged Pam Hupp with this murder, I got a call from Janet Meyer, Betsy's mother. 
and I can't go into on the radio the choice of words she used to describe the police officers as well as Leah Askey. The prosecutor. The prosecutor in this case, but she was as angry as I've ever seen anybody, and the, and the words that this 80-something-year-old woman used were <laughs> unbelievable, and she told me to apologize to Russ. And so she felt like she had been manipulated by all these people that were trying to push this guilty verdict on him. She knew she had been manipulated and she was angry. And I've never seen or spoken to anybody as angry as she was. We're talking today to attorney Joel Schwartz. He was the defense attorney for Russell Faria, who's, who's since been found not guilty in the murder of his wife, Betsy. Joel's new book is Bone Deep, co-written with uh, Charles Bosworth Jr. We do want to mention Joel will speak at the St. Louis County Library with Charles Bosworth Jr. as well as Post-Dispatch reporter Robert Patrick. That is happening this Saturday, February 26th at 7 p.m. Uh, you can find the details at slcl.org. That should be a really good conversation there. I know a lot of people are going to turn out for this. Pam Hupp, she's become almost a joke at this point. You know, this sort of woman with the, the soccer mom hair and sort of slumpy Missouri type woman. Vanity Fair called her the ultimate killer Karen. <laughs> and so, you know, she's become almost this meme at this point. But this woman, I mean, she had an extraordinary ability to convince people not to take her seriously as a murder suspect. What do you think it was about Pam? <laughs> it's the thing about Pam, and I don't know what that is. I didn't take her seriously for one second in her lies. I knew what she was capable of, and I was certain that she had something to do with the murder, even if she wasn't the one who plunged the knife into Betsy. I can't give you a reason why the police listened to her. I can't give you a reason why the prosecutor did. And to this day, I still don't know. She not only would lie over the course of time and change her story from month to month or year to year, she would change it in the course of one conversation, almost minute to minute. And the authorities just continue to ignore that like it meant nothing. That doesn't mean she did this. She may be a liar. She may have gotten the money, but that's not relevant here. It's weird. Her stories, as you relay them in this book, they seem so completely implausible. And she seems like she was a real pain in the neck for them to deal with as well. I just don't understand why they were so snowed under. And it's also hard to understand what drove her. Here's a woman who, you know, wife, mom, living in O'Fallon, and then all of a sudden she kills, we now believe she killed three people within the course of just a couple years. If you think of the inhumanity and the actual deed and doing the deed, mm. assuming that she is guilty of killing Betsy Faria, she plunged a knife deeply into and out of her friend over 50 times. She, saw, she shot Louis Gumpenberger. We know she's responsible for that at point-blank range after spending quite a bit of time conversing with him in her car after she picked him up and she knew he was brain damaged. Mm -hmm. The one case that has not been charged, and what I can tell you is there is certainly sufficient evidence. What we do know is she was the last one with her mother. She talked about her mother's life insurance that she gets when she died. And her mother died in a fashion that was certainly, at the very least, suspicious, and I would say that it was a homicide. Um, and if Pam was the one who did that, Given what we know, she would have had to have rolled her mother after kicking out bars of a railing to the edge of this concrete slab and then pushed her to the base three floors below. 
the inhumanity of that is almost unfathomable. We're talking about her own mother. Mm -hmm. Now, she hasn't been charged with that, and I can't say as to whether or not she did it. But what I can tell you is we know she was the last one with her. We know her mother had 14 times the recommended doses of Bambian in her system. And she went through these balustrades that were part of the railing that nobody could have broken through just simply by running into. So do you think that is ultimately the fascination with this case, that somebody who just looks like a a middle-aged soccer mom can maybe be one of the most evil people that you, a defense attorney, has ever encountered in your life? Well, she certainly is one of the most evil people I've ever encountered. And as far as the fascination, I think there's different facets. Um, It's the twists and turns that this goes through. It's not that she just did these acts and was caught because she wasn't. It's that she was successfully framed an innocent man, attempted to do it again, uh, the clownish investigation, the number of people that she most likely killed. And maybe beyond that is that this can happen, if it can happen to Russ Faria, mm-hmm. it can happen to anybody. And that may be the fear as well as the fascination. Uh, I really had no idea that it would blossom into something like this. Uh, when we did our first dateline, I told Keith Morrison, who's since become very friendly with me, that he'd be back. And he looked at me and he scoffed. And it's become a running joke now that he's been back for a sixth time. And we spent some time in New York at the premiere and I venture to guess that after Pam's trial, they'll be back for a seventh time. A seventh dateline. And as you say in this book, better ratings than their, their episodes about OJ, John Binet. I mean, this is up there. America cannot look away. You're now being played by Josh Duhamel in this new series that's coming out. As you mentioned in this book, at one point you thought about becoming an actor. This has got to be pretty cool that now there's a very handsome dreamboat playing you. Well, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't very uh, exciting and complimentary, and uh, everyone who I talk to, at least the females, they all are in love with this guy, and I, uh, I'll tell you, he's, uh, he's a great guy. And we Have you gotten him. to meet him? Oh, yeah. We've uh, we spent quite a bit of time together. Uh, we do talk. I spoke with him yesterday, uh, and he's been wonderful. Uh, I can't imagine a nicer guy playing me. Uh, and he, from all accounts, does just a wonderful job, and I, I can't wait to watch him. So uh, you haven't seen this yet? I have seen nothing other than a few snippets here and there. I've talked with them while it was being filmed almost daily, so I do know it remains true to the facts, and I think they've kind of taken a Fargo-like. Uh, Some dark humor. A, a little bit of dark humor, but again, it does remain accurate and truthful. And they've attempted to, it is Hollywood, and they've attempted to make it entertaining as well. So I imagine Josh Duhamel has been talking to you so much in part because he wants to get his Joel Schwartz impersonation down perfectly. What's the key to doing the perfect Joel Schwartz impersonation? Uh, curly head wig. <laughs> Does he wear a wig in this? <laughs> he wears a curly wig, and it's kind of funny because they. I was fortunate enough to... Um, they were very strict with COVID, and I had to be tested and vaccinated and everything else. But I was fortunate to do a short little cameo in the movie. And in doing so, they wanted to make me look as least like their star as possible. So they took my hair and spent about an hour and a half making it perfectly straight, which was kind of fun because I've never seen it like that. 
Uh, so it's been fun. We took some pictures with my hair straight and his hair curly, and uh, we've just had a lot of fun with that. Wow. Well, this just sounds like a blast. Eagle-eyed people will have to see if they can spot the straight-haired Joel Schwartz. This is going to be the true <laughs> test for viewers. Exactly. Joel Schwartz, thank you so much for joining us today. So, so thank you. I've enjoyed it. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Fenske with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.